Well, this morning we come to the end of our series on the Triune God. After a sermon next week, on the 11th of September, I hope to start a series on the Lord's Supper, Lord willing. But today is the final sermon on the Trinity. One never really moves on or leaves this topic behind, of course. But we will draw our directly addressing the matter to a close this morning. And we're going to do that from a text that's a fitting capstone, I think, to the series. It's a clear, simple, elegant, rich, and practical text. Namely, the last verse of the New Testament lesson, a very famous benediction, which is also, note, a prayer. It's also a prayer from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. All right, so the sermon's from one verse today. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice, first, how effortlessly the triune God just appears in fullness here. There's no long, complex discourse from Paul. He doesn't have to twist himself into knots to force his speech into some threefold or some triadic pattern. No, that's not how it happens, right? The living reality of the, tr- of the Trinity simply shines forth in his prayer for and his blessing of the Christians at Corinth. So, Trinitarianism just is Christian theism. And if it gets into your marrow, it will fall out easily. It will fall out naturally in your piety. Paul speaks, Paul writes, Paul prays as a servant of the one three-personed God who has formed and shaped him. You can see it in his speech, formed him profoundly. But notice, the fact that this, this benediction, this prayer, is what he leaves the Corinthian church with after this long and very turbulent letter. I mean, this is a letter that has irony, Mocking, sarcasm, right? caustic engagement with the Corinthians. This is a church with which he had a rocky relationship. And that these are his parting words to them highlights their relevance and their importance. So we're going to make four points. That's like one point for every three words in the text. They're there in the back of your bulletin. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and be with you all. So first then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The persons here in this benediction appear what might seem to be out of order from their normal relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Or even the reverse of that, right? In, in Ephesians 4, we, Paul, we saw Paul move spirit, son, father. So it turns out, because of the nature of the Trinity, of the unity of the three persons, you can start with any person and move to the other two. The key thing to get is you can never separate the persons. Paul is starting here with Christ, probably because he's the key, or he's the door into the Trinitarian life. We first encounter or, or apprehended by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as we've said before, and I think this is a helpful way to think of it, Jesus cracks open, if you will. He cracks open Jewish monotheism in a way which inevitably is going to lead us to full-blooded Trinitarianism. And we've seen this over and over in this series. But since it's the last time I'll get a chance to say it, I'm going to repeat it. We're not simply monotheists. We don't simply believe in God. We don't simply believe in Jesus. We don't simply believe in God and Jesus. We are Trinitarians, all the way down at every point. And I hope by now that we see that it it matters. It matters for our faith, our life, our mission, our prayer, our piety. So your entry... Your entryway into this Trinitarian mystery begins with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let us ask, what is grace? Right? We, we kind of know, right? Most simply, it's God's saving favor to us in our lost and sinful state. Right? It is the undeserved, freely given gift of God. By which you are redeemed. It's all grace all the way down. All Trinitarianism all the way down. All grace all the way down. And grace. Grace is a difficult thing for preachers to talk about. Because it's hard to kind of recapture the radicalness of it. The, the, the scandal of it. But grace is in many ways a new and unique thing in the world. Into this world. Where, as they say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Right? Into this world where everything is viewed as operating according to some sort of inexorable, you know, inexorable set of law. Where merit is the order of the day. Where everybody strives and fights and hopes to get what they deserve. What they've earned. What is theirs. Right, into this world of inexorable law and human beings who love to establish their right standing by law keeping, by rule keeping, by comparison. Into this world comes the free grace of God to people who not only don't deserve it, but who deserve judgment instead. Here we might add that grace is not, as is often said, unmerited favor. It's grander than that. It's demerited favor. It's not that we didn't merit grace. It's that we positively merited judgment. And we got grace instead. So grace then, for all of our speaking of it a lot, our casual acquaintance with it, our familiarity with it, is radically different from how we naturally view the world. How we instinctively react, law-like, tit-for-tat, remembering, measuring, counting, fighting, protecting our turf. And so describing the wonder of this grace is something which actually stretches Paul's apostolic vocabulary. Like he's always scrambling for words. It's not simply a gift. It's an undeserved, boundless bounty. 
Like it's like somebody whom you've defied and hated your whole life, leaving you an infinite inheritance. Paul calls this grace rich. These are some of his words. Lavish, incomparable, glorious, unsearchable, superabundant. God is no miser. And this grace overflows from the glorious fullness of his own triune life to us. Who deserve nothing but judgment. Beloved, our performance before the holy law of God between waking up this morning and arriving in that parking lot is enough to merit wrath for every single person in here. It's not like we merited judgment once. By the the canon of the law, we're meriting it perpetually. And God is treating us kindly in Christ with grace. And this is a scandal in some sense. Our instincts to treat people you know, according to law, to love our friends, to hate our enemies. Right? Thank God he doesn't do that. Our instincts find grace profoundly unfair. They find it profoundly unfair. I know a woman, an elderly woman, whose husband mistreated her for most of their marriage, who, when he was dying in the hospital for the first time, received Christ. And his wife was mad. (laughs) Right? She was angry. If that's what grace is, it is profoundly unfair. He's going to go to heaven now? It's profoundly unfair. Not for us, of course, but for those other people. Those godless enemies. Grace for me, law for thee. That's how we slip back into the Christian life, actually. We're all prone to this, right? Grace and mercy for me, law for the rest of you guys. And so there's there's nothing in our lives, no situation or trial, which stands outside the need for this grace. We need it in its fullness. It is grace which has brought you safe thus far. And it is grace and nothing but grace which will lead us home. Now, notice this in the text as well. This grace is personal. It's not like a thing, like a fluid or something that God pours into your soul. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of which Christ himself is the never-failing source. The grace which comes from Christ, as John puts it, from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. Now, here, I want to say a brief word about the works of the Trinity. This is a, a, a minor but technical point. It has to be said when you read a benediction like this. God is one in all his works. All three persons work together inseparably, in perfect harmony, in every work of God. Theologians call this inseparable operations. The same God works all things, Paul says. The same God works all things. And yet there are distinctions here. For instance, only the Son becomes incarnate as man, not the Father or the Spirit. 
certain works then are said to belong in a particular way to certain persons of the Trinity, but with the understanding that the other persons are inseparably involved. Right? So when Paul attributes grace as coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the point I want to make here. He's not implying that when it, when it comes to grace, the Father and the Spirit have nothing to do with it. Right? This language means that grace unveils and shows us the person of the Son in a unique way. That's all he means. So back to the main point here. That was a digression, but the, the main point. Grace to us comes, and it comes personally to you, from one whom Paul calls here the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this designation elsewhere. For you know, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty could become rich. That's the story of grace. The whole life, especially the death of Jesus, is the indescribable gift of grace, of saving help to us in our spiritual, moral poverty. And this grace opens up for you a glimpse into the life of the Holy Trinity. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point here is the love of God. And God in this context means the Father. God is love, right? We've seen this. He's not law. He's not karma. He is utterly and completely love. We could put it this way, right? God is love, and in him there is no hatred at all. Pure, holy love without anything dark or unlovely in his being. And as we've seen, right, to say God is love is to speak the language of the Trinity. Right? Love requires an other. It requires a communion of persons. We had a whole sermon on this. Love cannot exist in isolation. If God were an isolated, solitary being, love would not exist. Right? When we say love, God is love, we mean God is a communion, a bond between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is what we mean when we say God is love. We're not simply asserting that God is loving, though he is. We're asserting something about the nature of God. And we also saw that this love, which God is, does not, right, does not desire to be closed in or bent in on itself. And so God creates this world, showering his goodness on all creatures, even his enemies. And it's out of that infinite, tender love that the Father sends the Son. Right? It's, it's from the depths of this eternal, unchanging love of the Father that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ springs forth and you have become a partaker of it. God loves you. That's what this benediction says among other things, other profound and simple things. He doesn't simply love humanity in general. He loves you. And he loves me in particular. The Father loves me, this I know, because Jesus shows me so. That would be a wonderful children's song, right? The Father loves me, this I know, because Jesus shows me so. The Father in love sends The Son in love gives himself up. 
And this love of God the Father, right, it assures you that there's no dark, brooding, unloving God behind the back of Jesus Christ. I love to, I've told this story here before, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, the, the Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, he, he tells a story of two separate incidents in his ministry, separated by many years. Right? The first incident occurred when he was a young World War II army chaplain. And he was ministering to a wounded soldier. Soldier had maybe 20 minutes left to live. And the soldier asked him a startling question. He asked him, is God really like Jesus? He filed that away. And then years later, a dying woman in his congregation in the hospital asked him the exact same question. And he realized that some Christians, perhaps many, have a sense that there's an angry God behind the back of Jesus. That maybe God is not really like Jesus. Right? Maybe Jesus had to pacify the Father. We can easily slip into this, right? Where there's an angry Father who's the judge, and then the Son has to pacify the judge. And, and in doing this, we forget that it was the Father who in love sent the Son. Right? We forget the love of God the Father is behind the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where you forget that, well, then the atonement does look bizarre. So this is where the doctrine of the Trinity, beloved, becomes a matter of comfort and assurance in life and in death. To look into the face of the dying Jesus to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is to see the eternal, unchanging, and infinite love of God the Father for you. I and the Father are one. And when Jesus says that, he means there's no gap. There's no gap in being. There's no gap in action between them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the love of God the Father in action. This is love. This is love, John tells us, right? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for us. The father loves me. This I know because the son shows me so. And this is love, which God is, is a fountain. Right? From which all love flows. John also says this, we are to love one another because love comes from God and God is love. The God who is love loves us and then says love one another. And this brings me to the third point here, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So in love, the Father sends the Son. In grace, the Son accomplishes your redemption. And as the third person of the Trinity, as Lord and God, the Spirit gathers us into communion. So I want to note three things about this communion or this fellowship here. First, first it refers us back to the life of God himself. He is a fellowship. God is a communion, a living communion. Right? Beginning with Augustine, theologians have long held on the basis of texts like Romans 5. Romans 5 says the love of God has been poured out into your hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. And so the church has held that the Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. Communion is the job description, if you will, of the Spirit, even in the Trinity. Secondly, the Spirit works to bring us into communion with the triune God. Right? That's what the Spirit is doing. He's the perfecter, the consummator of all the purposes of God. The Holy Spirit is actively working, beloved, against our corruption, our entrenched evil, our recalcitrance, right? The, you know, the thickness, the density of our fallen nature, our deceit, our opposition, our resistance to overcome, to perfect, to cleanse, to make reconciliation won by Christ real in your experience. Right? He is the reason... He is the reason that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have communion with God. The Spirit unites you to Christ so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. So that you're enabled to partake of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. So the Spirit is the bond of communion in the Trinity. The Spirit unites us to Christ and thus the triune life of God. But also the Holy Spirit bonds us to one another. He makes this the communion of the saints. He creates this community of the church. There is one body because there is one spirit. We saw this in Ephesians 4 a few weeks ago. The Holy Spirit creates fellowship, communion. He creates the church. And you know what the church is? She's a living reflection, an icon of the Holy Trinity, or she is to be that. And it's here then that God calls us to holiness, to purity, to reflect the image of Christ. So this whole radical, American, rugged individualism, right? That's not a Christian idea. So the Spirit's work then, his presence in this prayer, in this benediction, is not an afterthought. Without the communion-giving, fellowship-creating Spirit, the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be in vain. There's no thirds in the Trinity. Like, you can have one-third or two-thirds. And so now, in closing, we're going to come to the immensely important final point. The last words of the benediction. Be with you all. So, this love of God, this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this fellowship of the Holy Spirit are not things that we merely confess, or abstractions. They don't exist in the ether for theologians to ponder, although theologians do ponder them. What I want you to see with the way this text closes is that these things, they must be with us all. We must be embraced in the Trinitarian life and reality. Recall This is how Paul concludes his correspondence to the Corinthian church. A church riddled with strife and rivalry and corrupt practices and doctrine and all sorts of disorder. This benediction then constitutes his prayer for them. It's the apostolic medicine for all of their illnesses. Again, this is not boilerplate stuff. The church does not simply confess the triune God. She desperately needs the triune God. Not God in general, but this God. 
as a living, abiding, pulsating reality because the Holy Trinity is our life. So I want to unpack this just a little here at the end. The love of God the Father. The love of God the Father. It's as if Paul is saying this to the Corinthians at the end. The love of God the Father creates love among us. It requires that we love one another, even as we have been loved. And the love that flows from this Father is not proud. It doesn't boast. It isn't self-seeking. It's not provoked. It's not provoked. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't, rem- it doesn't remember the bad things other people did. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes and it endures. That love must be with us if we are to be the body of Christ. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ demands that we be gracious. That we not give people their just desserts for God has not given us ours. This is grace then which must season our speech. It must induce humility in us and gentleness and patience and forbearance. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sheer generosity of God in him, must open us up in generosity to all the saints, indeed to all people. And the fellowship, right, the communion of the Holy Spirit must overcome all of our alienation. All of our nursed hurts, all of our pettiness, all of our long memories, all of our bitter jealousies, all of our envy, all of our estrangement. For the Spirit is determined to create a communion of holy ones, of saints who live with one another in a way that reflects the triune communion of love. This love of God the Father, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this fellowship of the Spirit are and increasingly must be with us all. Notice that. They must be with us all. Every last one of us. This, then, is what it means to be Trinitarian. And to be a full-blooded Trinitarian is simply just to be a Christian. We confess, we live by, we delight, we hope in this God. The God of grace, love, and communion. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.